I'm Matthew Galt. This is Cyber. Special shout out to the people who are watching us on Twitch as we record this one live. So in 2018, the campfire swept through California. It was the deadliest in the state's history, destroying more than 1,800 buildings and killing 85 people. The town of Paradise all but burned to the ground at the time. Four years later, Paradise is in the midst of a housing boom. New homes are everywhere as people, some of them who lost their homes in the campfire, return to the region. Now, there's no guarantee that another fire won't sweep through the region, so why are people flocking there? With me today to talk about this is Motherboard staff writer Aaron Gordon. Gordon is freshly back from California, where he chased some dogs through some forests and talked to a few Paradise residents. Aaron, thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Matt, always a pleasure. All right, so where exactly is Paradise? Paradise is about uh, an hour, hour and a half drive north of Sacramento, uh, and about three hours west of Reno, and about two and a half, three hours uh, northeast of the Bay Area. Okay, and so what happened in 2018? Uh, So 2018, there was a very, very large wildfire called, as you said, the Campfire. It it ultimately came out that it was started by um, sparking uh, power lines by PG&E, which has since kind of become notorious for in California and kind of throughout the country um, for poor maintenance and other lax practices that have made wildfires more likely. Um, but it was a huge fire at the time, the largest in California history. Uh, and it was kind of a perfect storm, if you will, or, you know, the worst possible storm for paradise specifically. Paradise sits at the top of a ridge surrounded by canyons and the campfire basically came through those ridges and canyons up the canyons to the town and kind of surrounded the town and made it difficult for people to flee once it, once it hit the town. Um, There were routes out. Obviously a lot of people did get out, but um, some people didn't 85 people died, um, mostly senior citizens um, with mobility issues or who otherwise were having trouble evacuating um, with the very little notice that they had that the fire was uh, entering the town. And uh, virtually the entire town was destroyed, uh, burned to the ground. Uh, I think the number is like 86% of the structures in town were destroyed, um, which, you know, is just an unfathomable number. I mean, you look, you know, people probably remember seeing photos from this. It was it was huge news at the time. Um, Just entire blocks completely leveled, burned to the, you know, just like nothing remaining of these of these fire sites. Um, and yeah, and the fire as a whole, uh, I think like, uh, something like 18,000 structures were destroyed, which is a huge, huge number in the average wildfire season up to that point. Usually they'd see maybe like 2,300, 
uh, structures destroyed around the entire country in all wildfires in a single season. Um, so to have 18,000 destroyed in a single town, in a single fire, obviously just total devastation. Yeah, I don't know why this particular anecdote, because you've got a bunch of great like stories from people who were there during the fire in, the sto- in, in your piece. Um, the guy that abandoned his, his truck on the side of the road lost his house and then came back to find um, that amidst all of these car- trucks and cars that had been abandoned on the side of the road, his was the only one left standing. I don't know why that one sticks out. Um, all right. Yeah, and it's very, it's very, I mean, just a quick note, it's very um, Ill- illustrative of a lot of anecdotes I heard when reporting there and talking to people who, who survived the fire, which is they really couldn't make sense of why some things survived and some things didn't. And it just, it, it nothing seemed to follow any kind of logic that they could uh, trace afterwards. You know, nobody could say, oh, that house burned down because of reasons X, Y, and Z, and that house didn't. It was like, no, there would be a cul-de-sac, one house would be surviving, all the others would be completely gone, and you couldn't look at it and have any, you know, there was no structural reason, there was no layout to the cul-de-sac that made, that gave it any sense. It all seemed very random and haphazard to everybody, which I think is kind of informing the way some people interpret the the future of the town. You know, if we can't make sense of what happened, then how can we make sense of what we should do or shouldn't do going forward? Yeah, I mean, that's in a way, that's kind of a perfect segue, right, which is... <laughs> There's this chaos of this fire, and then four years later, you would think that this being an area that burned almost completely to the ground, uh, many of its houses destroyed, that it would not be at the top of the list as a place where people would want to move to. However, what's going on in paradise these days? Yeah, I mean, what you just described is exactly what the realtors I spoke to told me, and, you know, these are people who have lived in paradise their whole lives. They're born and raised there. And now they obviously work there selling homes and have since well before the fire. They thought the same thing when the fire happened, like who's going to want to move here? You know, how, how, how is this town going to ever attract new people given what happened? Um, But that hasn't been the case at all. Uh, So now, you know, before the fire, so Paradise is up the ridge, like I said, you know, basically uh, there's a there's a city of about 100,000 people at the bottom of the ridge called Chico. Uh, and it's about a 15 minute drive from one to the other. You basically drive up the edge of a canyon um, for about 10 miles. And what ended up happening after the fire is, uh, you know, it took about two years for construction to really resume in Paradise. And before the fire, Paradise was always cheaper than Chico uh, by, you know, varying amounts over time, but always reliably cheaper and the lots were larger. In the last two years, that parity has closed to the point that now they're basically the same price. Um, maybe Paradise is even a little bit more expensive and their lots are obviously larger, but their lots are larger as well. So that's, you know, something to keep in mind. Um, Chico, you tend to buy like, you know, classic Southern California plot, of like a house with very little space next to it. Uh, Paradise, most people have, you know, eight, an acre, half an acre, two acres, some, somewhere in that, um, somewhere in that area. But yeah, Paradise has become a lot more expensive since the fire. It's experienced a building boom, a real estate boom of sorts. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where it's at now. Is there anything being done to prevent another wildfire or to make sure that it's not as bad the next time? 
Uh, I mean, that's a trickier question than it sounds. Like, obviously, they're not doing nothing, right? Because that would that would be um, kind of insane. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of open question about how effective the things they are doing will actually be and whether there is such a way to prevent something like this from happening again. So, for example, um, before the fire, I got the sense from a lot of people there that the idea of uh, defensible territory around the house, which is kind of like a fire prevention term um, for removing trees overhanging your homes and lots of brush on the ground and long grasses and those types of things that create lots of sparks and embers and easily burn during a fire that kind of act as kindling around your house. Um, There wasn't much enforcement to prevent people from having that um, around around their houses and on their property. Now, Paradise is paying a lot more attention to that. There are city ordinances um, saying you can't have that and you need to maintain your property. But it's kind of like an open question of how effective that would actually be in such a cataclysmic fire or even just a you know less severe but still significant fire. Um, the other thing is the town is trying to build up, uh, buy up properties kind of around the town, uh, on the edge of the canyons in a lot of cases, thinking that that will create a kind of buffer zone between any future fire in the canyons uh, so that it won't have the fuel to come up into the town. And again, this is like something that's kind of openly debated about whether it would be successful or not at preventing another fire. And what is the... I'm trying to think of how to ask this. I'll just ask it this way. What is the psychology of a person that would buy a home in a place where everything burned down four years ago. Yeah. I mean, that kind of became the the focus of the story. Um, the more I reported on it, because it was clear that talking to realtors, they tended to get two different reactions from people when they found out there was a, you know, a house available in paradise that fit their, you know, criteria. One was they want nothing to do with it, you know, for the reasons that I'm sure, uh, you know, that we've kind of alluded to now, like who wants to move to a place like that right now? Um, but then, and, but then there would be other people who it just wouldn't bother them at all. It wouldn't be a thing that registers for them that it's something they should factor in or care about. Um, and we don't, and when I say we, I'm talking almost just like society as a whole. We don't have a good understanding of why people move to places that recently suffered some kind of natural disaster. It's not something that's been studied very well, um, largely because it hasn't been as big of a problem or an issue until recently. Um you know, especially with wildfires, it really hasn't been until the last five to seven years that we've regularly had wildfires that significantly imp- significantly impact population centers. Before that, they tended to mostly be rural affairs. You would get, you know, maybe a couple hundred, maybe in a really bad fire, a couple thousand structures in total that burned down over all the many tens of thousands of acres affected by the fire. They tended to be kind of isolated houses or groups of homes, never entire towns of tens of thousands of people, or at least very rarely. So we don't really have a great idea of why people do this. At least what I, so, you know, I, spoke to people i did you know you know not not a ton of people not like you know enough to come to any kind of academic conclusions on the subject but i sat down i had very long conversations with them trying to figure this out and i think one of the key commonalities between all of them is they had themselves recently suffered some kind of family catastrophe in which they lost a lot of their possessions 
And so they do not fear something similar happening to them in the future. Like, for example, one family I talked to in Profile in the Peace recently had a house fire, lost everything. Another family had been in Texas during a terrible flood, had to load up all their possessions in their truck, uh, drove somewhere else. And then while they were there, their truck was stolen with other stuff inside. So I think... I think that's one commonality that I at least noticed. Uh, I'm not saying if it's absolutely everybody's circumstances, but um, I think that has to be part of the mindset, which is a kind of like, not necessarily anti-materialist, but just um, not, not fundamentally materialist outlook on their world and what matters to them, if that makes sense. It does. And Brennan Sage has a comment and then a question that I think is pretty good. Um, says, I still live in New Orleans after Katrina, even though I know it could happen again. Um, and then the question is, do the original residents move back or are these new people moving in? Yeah. So your observation about New Orleans is very good too. Cause one of the, one of the researchers that I spoke to who I think is, uh, uh, her name is Katie McConnell, who I think is one of the only researchers really studying human immigration patterns after wildfires she kind of made a similar observation which is you know there's a lot of focus on wildfires for obvious reasons but like you know people do this with floods with katrina with hurricane sandy a lot of coastal cities people are moving to places that really aren't climate safe um so it's not an it's not a phenomenon i uh limited to wildfires for sure um in terms of the existing residents of paradise at the time of the fire and what happened to them uh, Katie did lots of excellent research on that as well. And there was kind of one dynamic to paradise that makes it a bit unique in this respect, which is it had a very aging population at the time of the fire. Its first big population boom for the town was in the sixties and seventies. Um, so, you know, with people who were kind of buying their first homes and trying and starting families, uh, at that time. And they've aged in place, you know, at the time of the fire, they were, they were older. Uh, the town had a, had a, uh, population mix, uh, or demographic mix, I should say, that more closely resembled Japan than the U.S. in terms of the number of elderly people. I think it was like something like 25% were 65 or older. And so after the fire, a lot of those people uh, basically said, you know, some to some effect of, I don't know how much longer I'm going to live. Do I really want to spend, you know, what years I have left you know, rebuilding a house that then this could just all happen again. And um, a lot of them ended up just cashing out and uh, moving somewhere else. And the numbers are a bit tricky here to report, again, because uh, it's hard for researchers to keep track of this stuff um, and to really, you know, track people on an individual basis. But at first, most of the people moving back to Paradise um, had lived there before the fire. But the further away we get from the fire, the more that switched around, uh, I think it was in 2020, we basically, or just, uh, it was 2021, actually, where we reached a crossover point where more of the um, housing permits were going towards people who did not live in paradise before the fire than those who um, were moving there fresh. And since then, it, the disparity has gotten greater. Now it's probably closer to like, 75, 25 new people versus people moving back. All right. We're going to pause there for a break. Cyber listeners, if you are watching on Twitch, we will be back immediately. If you're listening to the podcast version, here's a few words from our sponsors. Hold up. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking around. We're on with Aaron Gordon. We're talking about the town of Paradise, California, which burned down four years ago and uh, is experiencing housing boom. All right, Aaron, I'm going to hit you with this quote really resonated with me um, in the story. Um, And I think it explained to me one of the reasons people kind of flock to this area. Um, Quote, you can be a builder or a custodian or a teacher earning a middle income, lower income salary and still own a home. And I think that's almost impossible in probably much of the rest of California, much of the rest of the U.S. West at this point. And so I think the trade-off then becomes like, yes, you can live here. It's a beautiful place to live. You can buy a home, but there's also sort of a known fire risk. Uh, where did you get that? Who, who told you that? And can you give us some context on it? Yeah, so that was the researcher I spoke to, um, Katie McConnell, who has, for one of her studies, spoke to, I think it was 24 members uh, or members of 24 different households um, who had lived in paradise at the time of the fire, but did not return. You know, they moved somewhere else. Um, to find out why, like what their logic was. And she was talking about that first generation or not first generation, but that that generation during the big housing boom in the 60s and 70s, why they came to paradise. And, uh, you know, we don't really think of the 60s and 70s as a time of, you know, a housing crisis in California because it wasn't as bad as it has been since. But, um, you know, these are a lot of families who came from Southern California, mostly some from the Bay Area, too. But I think it was mostly Southern California. And, you know, when their families had gone to Southern California, it was a mostly rural area, farmland, that type of thing. And in the post-war era, you know, thanks a lot to the defense industry at the time, it really got built up um, to the point where the farmland virtually disappeared. And so what a lot of people were uh, were looking for was something more closely resembling that environment. And they ended up finding it in paradise. The other quote that really struck me here is from another researcher. Is it Pine? Is that how you say it? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to pull this one up on the stream so people can follow along. And this is from a, from a 1997 book, World Fire, the Culture of Fire on Earth, which is also like a study of migration patterns around wildfires, right? Kind of. It, it, it's a pretty wide-ranging like cultural history of the relationship between humans and fire. There's mm-hmm. like one chapter specifically on settlement patterns and wildfire, which I read for the story, which I think really, really helped a lot. But yeah, that's the one that's quoted. Yeah, I, f- I found this really interesting too. Their income comes speaking of the people uh, who live in these kinds of areas. Their incomes come from elsewhere as do their values and expectations. Typically they want urban amenities, but without an urban setting, they expect urban services such as sanitation, police education, fire protection, but not urban bureaucracies, taxes, and hassles. They want a rural setting without a, without having to rely on a rural economy. They want the best of both worlds and are willing to fall through the through institutional cracks to get them. They assume that fire occurs elsewhere, and then when fires do strike, often they expect that someone else will fight them. Um, they, and he, they kind of calls them an intermix 
or he calls the areas that they settle in intermix, the worst of all worlds. Can you put a little bit more context on this one for me? Yeah, so this is about a concept that has become very popular in wildfire research called um, the urban wildlife interface. And it's basically area talking about areas exactly like paradise, areas where homes are kind of nestled amidst wooded areas um to but dense enough that they can form towns like paradise with tens of thousands of people but um you know sufficiently non-dense that people basically don't have neighbors essentially or at least they have neighbors but like you know they can't see them from their house um and this is uh you know it it's kind of tricky to talk about because uh you know, it's a, it's a way of life that I think a lot of people find appealing, especially Americans. You know, you, like like the quote says, you you have all the conveniences of, of an urban area. Like they don't have to go far for a grocery store, for a doctor, for hospitals, for schools. Uh, you really get kind of a lot of the conveniences of urban life. But, you know, you have this kind of bucolic, um, semi-rural experience. The problem, of course, is it's incredibly wildfire susceptible because basically every home is surrounded by kindling. And, you know, in, in, in a lot of cases, uh, it's literally underneath the house. The brush gets underneath the house and it basically becomes kind of like a bed of kindling for the house in, in any case of wildfire. Um, and we've never really systematically as a country considered the risks of these kinds of settlement patterns. We've instead just expanded, expanded, expanded. Um, as our population has grown, you know, another point you make, you know, one point I make in the article is since, you know, in, in the time that these types of areas really got built out, the population of the U.S. Um, almost doubled. Like there were about 100 million people in the country at the begin at the turn of the 20th century. And you basically tacked on another 100 million people from the end of World War II to the beginning of the 21st century. Like, it's just, I mean, the, the, we often don't think about how many more people we have to house in this country. And we haven't mostly not done it by building up in already developed areas. We've instead mostly done it by building out in undeveloped areas, creating more and more of these urban wildlife interface areas um, that are just fundamentally wildfire prone, wildfire unsafe. You know, like when we were talking about the preventative measures earlier, one of the big points of skepticism that these can work is because they're fighting against so many fundamental forces that make these areas susceptible to wildfire to begin with. And it's and one of the key conflicts here, or paradoxes, if you will, is to make these areas wildfire safe, like removing so many of the trees near the house, removing almost all of the underbrush, uh, you know, like... Uh, uh, you know, just managing the forest around the area, which will fundamentally kind of change the shape and landscape of the of the scene. Uh, they're removing a lot of the things that people find attractive about paradise to begin with. I mean, one of the key reasons people are moving to paradise right now is the recreational opportunities are, are great. Like it's a wonderful, beautiful place if you enjoy doing outdoorsy stuff. Tons of hiking, tons of mountain biking, tons of road cycling. There are lakes, there are rivers. You know, it's just like it's a it's a wonderful outdoorsy place. And to properly manage it for a wildfire, you'd have to have a real conversation about how much it makes those things less attractive. You know, how much of those fires would have to be managed, or how many of those forests would have to be manageably burned every year? You know, how many, how much of the 
of the areas around those forests would you have to limit development on or completely knock down all the trees from to create defensible areas? You know, these are this kind of fundamental conflict is something that Pine acknowledged back in 1997. And I only came across that chapter actually towards the end of my research. And it was kind of chilling how accurately he described so many of the conversations I had with people in paradise, uh, many of whom really lean fundamentally conservative, uh, which is another kind of point that he makes, which is these are people who want these things without really any of the burdensome regulations or taxes that they're fleeing urban areas from. Um, but, you know, how do you manage, you know, in a town that needs some kind of regulatory structure to make sure people are managing their properties or, you know, a, 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 a on guard fire management system, basically as a full time department or any of these other things they would need to do in order to make it wildfire safe that would fundamentally be a more active government? Um, these, you know, difficult, difficult questions. All right. So you, the the. the- you spent how how long were you there? How long were you in Paradise? I was there for four days. Um, yeah. I, obviously, I did a lot of reporting outside of those four days. Right. But yeah, I was there for four days. Now, what were how many people did you talk to? I talked to about a dozen when I was there. Um, okay. Obviously, not everyone made it into the piece. Uh, right. But yeah, uh, I talked to about a dozen people when I was there. Can you tell us a little bit about what those conversations were like? What were the, what were the backgrounds people were coming from, and what were you asking them, and how did they respond? Yeah, I mean, this piece was, it was a kind of like a, you know, give me your life story type interviews. You know, a lot of times I'm interviewing for stories, I'm interviewing experts, I'm interviewing, you know, about their research, I'm interviewing, or about a specific subject, I'm interviewing, you know, people who had very specific experiences, like witnessed a, a you know, a car crash or something that I want to know more about. And those can be very quick and, and straightforward interviews. These were not like that. These were like, I was going to people's homes, I was sitting down with them. For hours, I was talking to them about basically their entire life up to that point, because why people move or live in specific places is often a much more personal question than it may sound. You know, it may seem like someone would just reply, oh, well, that's where I got a job or, oh, that's where this. And sometimes that's true. But in these cases, these were all people who were making active decisions to move somewhere that had recently suffered a absolute catastrophe and to find out why they didn't that didn't bother them or deter them um ended up being very personal conversations about a lot of traumatic life experiences they had had up to that point um and to really get to know them well enough that i felt like i could represent their stories well enough and accurately enough in the story while also you know kind of telling this bigger story about paradise took a lot of time um with these interviews and some of them you know, we're, we're trying for the interview subjects and, you know, I want to shout out, um, you know, Elizabeth and, and, uh, Taylor who are in the story who, and Jen and Doug who, and, and, and Sherry who all like, you know, took the time to tell me about some really horrible things that have happened in their lives and how that allowed them to kind of, uh, come to terms with living in paradise. Um, and they all kind of had a little bit different answers, but like I said, you know, I think one of the commonalities is that they had all experienced something, Traumatic, you know, like uh, Elizabeth uh, moved to paradise in part because her home in, a, in a, another California suburb um, had burned down in a house fire or, you know, suffered terrible smoke damage and she lost all of her possessions. Um, and so, like, these are these are the kinds of conversations that I was mostly having when I was out there. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about 
Taylor. Because I thought that was mm-hmm. the her husband's alignment now alignment instructor. Is that right? Yeah, like for like a uh, for power companies like power alignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell me a little uh, bit more about her and what her story was? Yeah, so Taylor, uh, she's uh, I think twenty six years old, if I can remember correctly, off the top of my head. Uh, has two kids, one newborn. Um, they lived in Texas beforehand. I think she's from Montana, if I remember correctly, but they lived in Texas. The rare, for, the rare Texas to California transplant instead of the other way around. Yeah. And let me tell you something that came up a lot in this story was people who had moved from more conservative states who thought they would never move to California because it's liberal reputation. Um, but coming to paradise and realizing one, it's beautiful and they loved it. And two, not all of California is, you know, the Bay Area or L.A., that there are a lot of very conservative pockets in in uh, in California and Paradise is definitely in one of them. Um, but anyways, so Taylor, uh, she is a dental hygienist. Her husband's a power lineman. And uh, basically he was making the transition from working on the power lines to teaching uh, at, at a at a tech at a you know technical school that would teach other power linemen and they had two choices essentially of where they could relocate to where the school where the school had a location one was boise idaho and the other was uh oroville california which is just next to paradise and taylor is a very um detail oriented and uh efficient person you know very very focused uh and she kind of did a ton of homework on which place they should move to essentially uh, a lot a lot based on cost of living and housing prices but also based on you know job opportunities for her and uh also um recreational opportunities they're both big mountain bikers and, and hikers i think so and so they did a lot of research and obviously boise uh has lots of recreation has lots of mountains you know to do the kind of mountain biking they like to do um, cost of living used to be low, but Boise has experienced a ho- a pandemic era housing boom, like so many uh, mountain towns slash cities uh, that accommodate remote work uh, situations a lot better. So as a result, Boise's housing costs are actually basically on par with Paradise's now, despite you know Paradise being in California and near a near a large city, and they ended up moving, deciding to move to Paradise. They liked it a lot better for various reasons. Uh, they moved there a couple of months ago. and Or I'm sorry, they moved there in August, uh, if I recall correctly. And uh, they love it. I mean, they, 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 they are super happy to be there. Um, they found a home that they could afford. Uh, they feel like there's a real community vibe there um, that they didn't have in Texas, where they found it more difficult to make friends. Uh, and yeah, they're just they're just super happy. And they're really not concerned about the wildfire risk at all. They think it's unlikely to happen there again, which is something that I heard from a lot of people. Um, It seems to be just a thing that people say. I'm not really sure if it's based on anything or not, like any actual evidence or something they read somewhere. But there seems to be this widespread belief that because it happened once, it can't happen again or is unlikely to happen again. And uh, even if it does happen, you know, Taylor said, you know, I, I have my kids. I have my husband will get out. Okay. And if our house burns, it's just stuff we will replace it. Are there other economic and societal factors that are pushing people to places like paradise? 
Well, certainly the the remote work aspect is is inflating housing prices. Um, it's hard to say how much that's impacting Paradise housing prices specifically because Paradise has such a kind of unique housing landscape due to the fact that you know it had an inventory of zero four years ago um, or functionally zero. Uh, rise of remote work is definitely a consideration. Um, so is just the nature of the rebuild of paradise, right? Because all of this work is going into rebuilding the town. They received federal grants. They received state grants to do all kinds of work, like bury sewer lines a lot and power lines and internet lines. Um, they're getting like super high speed fiber optic internet for the entire town, which is something that most semi-rural California towns can't boast. Um, there's a ton of work to be done clearing all the trees that didn't burn from the fire, but were still safety hazards because, you know, they, they could fall down and they could fall down over roads. They could fall down over houses. They could fall down over people's RVs, which a lot of people are living in, you know, temporary housing while their homes get built or while they figure out where to, you know, build their next home. Um, so there's a ton of work to be done for contractors and subcontractors for all of this work. And, not to mention the actual building of houses, which is obviously a very profitable endeavor for the people who do that and supply the people who do that and subcontract from the people who do that. So it has kind of a boomtown vibe um, at the moment, just lots of people there to work, um, you know, who don't necessarily live there or want to live there long term. But there's just so much money to be made at the moment that um, there are a lot of people kind of in and around the town for that reason. Do you still see evidence of the fires? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't drive around Paradise and not wonder what the hell happened there if you didn't know already. I mean, there are, like, a lot of burned-out half-structures, kind of, so to speak, like iron wrought iron gates that guard, you know, that are closed and locked and burned, but guard an empty lot. Um, a lot of, like, a lot of pine trees that are burned except for the top canopies, so they look very strange. Trees that are just leaning at really, really odd angles. Um you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of like tree stumps, like it's just obvious. So many trees have been cut down and it just doesn't make sense with the surrounding landscape, which is very foresty. Um, you know, if you, when you drive up there, you see that like it's a forest and then you get to paradise and it's, you know, there, there, there are trees, but not tree cover. It's not, it's not the same. Um, there's a gif in the article that kind of shows the transition from pre and post fire. And it, you know, the satellite image shows green and then post fire is like brown and that's kind of how it feels in the town um and there are just lots of empty lots everywhere you know as you would expect still like even though there have been about two thousand building permits granted since the fire you know that's nothing compared to the 18 20 000 structures they had before the fire so there's just lots of empty lots lots of um kind of like half-built houses or in-progress homes um yeah, it's just very, it's very, you know, maybe you couldn't say exactly that it was a wildfire as you dro drove through it if you didn't know already, but you would definitely notice that something, something is not right. All right, Aaron, I think that will about wrap it up. Uh, may very well be, would like to say, just as a side note at the end here, ban lawns. People love them and they should be banned. Uh, ban lawns. Ban lawns, I think is something that some of us can get behind thank you aaron so much for coming on and walking us through this the article which is on motherboard and everyone should read 
is me scrolling up quickly. Paradise burned to the ground. Now it's another hot housing market, which you can find on motherboard.vice.com. If you like the show, please like us on iTunes. Rate it. People pay attention to that stuff. Leave us a comment. It helps other people find the show. And we are recording these live on Twitch, where you can see them commercial-free. You uh, follow us on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV, and you'll be notified whenever we go live. Thank you all so very much for showing up, and we will catch you next time. We've got some some interesting and spicy stuff coming up next week at Motherboard. I'm sure uh, everyone will enjoy it. Bye-bye, everybody. Cheers, everyone. 